Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Haley Stewart. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'll give you a quick introduction and then I'll, I'll let you, you you talk about yourself. But I'll, I'll just say for our listeners, Haley is a Catholic convert, writer, speaker, podcaster, wife and mother of four. And you might know her from her blog, Carrots for Michaelmas, or as co-host of the Fountains of Carrots podcast. Uh, she's been a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute and recently became managing editor for uh, the Word on Fire Spark, which is their new publishing line for children and young readers. And she is author of several books, including The Grace of Enough, Pursuing Less and Living More in a Throwaway Culture, and coming next month, her new title, Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be, which we will be discussing in this episode. So I am delighted to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming. (laughs) Yes, I'm so excited to chat with you. This is going to be fun. And what you know, but your listeners don't, is that at some point during this writing process, I sent you a chapter and I was like, Rachel, you're my target audience. Is this <laughs> sounding right? Is uh, this the right vibe? So that was I awesome. had so much fun and I can't tell you how much pleasure I got in seeing my name in the acknowledgements. <laughs> I felt famous. And this feels really exciting to me because Fountains of Carrots was probably the second or third podcast I ever listened to ever and was a big inspiration for me starting a podcast because I felt like it was so inspiring to listen to Catholic women talking about faith and culture and all of those things that make up day-to-day living in in a truly Catholic and small-c Catholic universal sense. And so it's so exciting to to see people doing that. And it really inspired me to think, oh, that's something I could do. (laughs) That's so good to hear. That's awesome. So maybe, I don't know, do you want to talk a little bit about what areas you're interested in and how you came to write a Jane Austen book? Sure. So this idea is something that I've kind of been brewing for several years. And I would kind of work on it a little bit, come up with some ideas, and then it kept having to be put on the back burner because of various other things. And then it just kept popping up into my brain. And I've always loved Jane Austen's novels. I I just enjoy talking with other people about her work and seeing how her novels have influenced them and what they've meant to other people. And I love a good conversation about a Jane Austen adaptation that you can either just completely ooh and awe over how great it was, or you can just get really fired up about everything they got wrong and how terrible it was. So um, thinking about all of that, it's very, all of her novels are very dear to my heart, but I also felt like she is underrated in a lot of ways, kind of passed off as a romance novelist, which she writes great romance, but there's a lot more going on than just her influence in like the romantic comedy kind of vein. So many romantic comedies are just 
taken from her plots and kind of reworked. But there's a lot more to Austin than just the romance, even though the romance is great. And so that's what I wanted to dive into is looking at her a little bit more seriously as a philosopher, a moral philosopher, and seeing what we can learn from her novels about being good people, about living in communities with other people and how that influences us and how learning from her, we can become more the people that we are called to be because we've seen her characters become more the people that they were called to be or maybe not. And we've seen what <laughs> happens down the road for them. And so um, that was kind of the catalyst or inspiration for this project. And then when I dived into it, it was just one of the most fun things to write that I've ever gotten to write because it was one of those you just sit down and you can write 2000 words bam because <laughs> it's been in your head you've had these conversations so many times and it's just right at your fingertips I love that it's so true I feel like I've just been doing a book club with my friends I haven't reread them in a long time and so we've been going through each of the novels and you're right you can just keep talking about it forever and I recently read her letters and it really drove home to me how much I'm like certain I would be friends with her. I really hope <laughs> that she would be friends with me. Uh, she just is so charming. And I think that's what's so compelling about her books is that in some ways, the reason they get dismissed, uh, which is really unfortunate, but it is because she's able to write with lightness and humor and comedy. Um, but what she's writing about, like you said, are actually important things and are, can be really useful for reflecting on our own behavior or showing us a kind of moral path. I know in the book you had a, a great quote from Anthony Trollope who was saying that Austin places us in a circle of gentlemen and ladies and charms us while she tells us with an unconscious accuracy how men should act to women and women act to men. It is not that her people are all good and certainly they are not all wise. The faults of some are the anvils on which the virtues of others are hammered until they are bright as steel. In the comedy of folly, I know no novelist who has beaten her. And I think that just sets her up so wonderfully that she can be so accurate and so demonstrative in, in the ways of like how to live out virtue. But with this really humorous touch, I think we all see a lot of... Um, her in Elizabeth Bennet and Elizabeth Bennet's willingness in Pride and Prejudice to laugh at people's follies. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I, I just love that Trollope quote because I think it pinpoints both what makes her really genius and also why some people miss it, which I think is partly because while she does tackle some really serious topics, she's doing it in a setting that is more domestic and it's not, it's a smaller sphere. So you've got, you know, a limited, a small community of characters mm -hmm. and you don't see people in like at court, you don't <laughs> see them um, in, at, in battlefields or any of these big dramatic settings that a lot of classic novels are are interested in. And so because she's got this more limited small sphere, I think she gets dismissed. But what 
is incredible is how meticulous and nuanced and just perfect her little spheres are at expressing human nature and the human condition and friendship, you know, all of the big questions, but she's doing it in this brilliant, tiny way mm-hmm. that I think is why she sometimes gets dismissed. Not not to mention the kind of elephant in the room, which is she's a woman. She writes mostly <laughs> female characters and yeah. it's mostly um, settings that women are predominant, you know, the predominant characters in. And that seems to be not interesting to some people. <laughs> um, <laughs> while it would never be, you know, other authors would ne- male authors who write about mostly men would never be criticized for having unrelatable or uninteresting plots of <laughs> characters, even though half of the population isn't really included in their in their main characters. And so I think that is a piece of it too. So I'm always very Whenever a a man is a big Austin fan, that is immediately like tells me something about his character mm-hmm. immediately that he's able to connect and relate and see the genius in her work. That's always a really good sign for me. And I'm always like very turned off by anyone, male or female, who's like, I just don't like her. I just <laughs> think she's overrated. I just I can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think it's interesting because I obviously I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So obviously I totally think that it's really compelling to tell these moral stories on big scales, like to have courage shown in a battlefield or to have endurance shown in the trenches or, or whatever it is. But I think in some ways those are easier stories to tell because it's kind of obvious that you would need virtues in those situations. And what's so great about Austin is that she manages to make the mundane version of that really compelling. Mm -hmm. And that it shows it on a level that most of us would actually encounter in our lives that like most of us are not asked to be in big dramatic epic sweeping stories, but most of us do have to have dinner with relatives that we don't really like or <laughs> like spend time with friends that aren't very good for us or or any of those things that like in some ways it's easier to see how virtue plays out and I think it's really worthwhile to see how it plays out on a more grand scale because it, it links you into sh- to see how virtues are always part of that bigger story the, the story of Christ but that to make it compelling and funny and interesting on such a, like a microcosmic scale, like you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it both helps us imagine those questions of, you know, what would we do in this situation? Because it is, it is daily life. It's the sort of situations that we're all going to face, even though it's a different era. It's very relatable, these relationships Mm -hmm. and these, these situations. And I think it also helps us see other people more clearly because mm. it shows how important these seemingly small interactions and the way that people, attitudes towards other people, the way people are treated in these moments that maybe don't seem like they would be very important, that really show somebody's character. You know, I think about um, in Emma, Mr. Knightley is just my favorite of all the male protagonists. I just love him so much. And there's just he doesn't do anything like incredible he's not like 
going to war or like <laughs> sacrificing his life or you know anything like that. But there's just all of these little moments where you see him put other people's, be aware of other people's needs and put them before his own over and over again in these little tiny ways, whether it's, you know that the annoying spinster doesn't have a way to get to the party everyone's going to. It's not that you really enjoy hanging out with her, but you care that she wants to go to this party and she doesn't have a carriage and you're going to send your carriage so she can go. And I really, I think that pointing out those small, that it's in those small things that are really going to make up most of our characters. We're not going to be asked to sacrifice our lives in these dramatic ways of martyrdom usually, but it's these little moments where no one's making us do something. No one would even really notice mm. we didn't do this thoughtful thing. There's no benefit to us other than knowing it's the right thing to do and wanting to do what's right. And so I think that's why I love Mr. Knightley's character, but also just the minutia of what Austin pays attention to. It's these little things. It's Mr. Knightley noticing and sending the carriage. It's Frank Churchill, who's kind of a little bit of the rake in the story. Um, but he's not terrible. But mm -hmm. there's a moment where he has to, he says he has to go to London to get a haircut. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's a tiny little thing. But it just yeah. tells you something about who he is and what's important to him and what he'll make a priority above other things. And and whether he's being completely honest in the story about what he had to do, which later you have questions about that. And so it's just these really tiny things, which as a human being, I think especially in friendships and romantic relationships, you start to realize the big things matter, but the little things are what make up a relationship. And understanding someone's ability to be thoughtful of other people and put them first, even when it doesn't really benefit them financially or socially or in any other way, just because it's the right thing to do and you want to do what's right. Those are, that's the kind of thing that really makes someone a wonderful friend or makes someone a wonderful spouse. And I think Austin is able to kind of pinpoint those little things that really do add up to everything. Yeah, I think that's so spot on because I think if you take any of her Honestly, any of her characters, there are a couple of characters who do things that are genuinely villainous. And I think even today would be kind of tutted on. But for the most part, all of them are fine. Like no one would strike you as being really immoral. Um, and certainly her heroines, I think most people would assume that they are virtuous enough that like they're not doing anything egregious they're not being horrible they're not like they're not being malicious and yet Austin brings us on this journey which allows us to to see how they come to recognize that actually they do have faults that need to be corrected that there are failings that need to be assessed and to see that that actually matters <laughs> like mm -hmm. it does matter whether you're virtuous on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I know she has some beautiful prayers. I think you referenced one of them in the book, but I think I have another one, which uh, just to quote a little bit from it says, teach us to understand the sinfulness of our own hearts and bring to our knowledge every fault of temper and every evil habit in which we have indulged to the discomfort of our fellow creatures and the danger of our own souls. And mm -hmm. it's like, 
the fact that she wrote those prayers really, because she's not very explicitly Christian in what she's writing for the most part. There's occasions where it comes in, but the fact that it's kind of this whole fictional world of hers, of this, you know, Georgian Regency era that is very realistic and she's a she's a realistic author, but is is a fiction, but it's built on this body of like a really concrete sense of that, like your morals really do matter, that they are incredibly important and influential in a cumulative effect that prepares your heart for the bigger things that are in your life. And then for the biggest thing in your life, which is your death, <laughs> um, that all of these things are part and parcel of that. Yes, I know. I think that's really good, really good insights. And I think she shows how, um, like, to take Pride and Prejudice, which is the one that most people are, are most familiar with. The it's Mr. Bennett, for instance, not a villain. Like he's not a malicious villain. He's very, in some ways, quite lovable and likable, mm-hmm. but he has neglected his responsibility to plan for his family's future. You know, he, he couldn't be bothered. He's a little bit lazy and he was apathetic about his family's future. And now they're in this terrible financial situation and it's a mess. And like, if what could happen happens, which is he dies and the estate is, goes to the next male relative, which is a distant cousin, the women of the family have nowhere to live. They have no way to provide for them. It's a, it's a whole mess. And so just showing that our, our character and our decisions and these little sins do affect other people in, in possibly very big ways, small ways or big ways. Like the prayer talks about to the discomfort of others. You know, it might just be really frustrating. It might cause strife in the community or it might cause a complete disaster and really hurt other people. And so I think that because Austin focuses on these small communities, you just see how everything is connected. And when we are virtuous and really thoughtful of others and and trying to take care of our community and do the right thing, what good things come from that? And then when we're selfish and we're not thinking about the consequences of our actions and how they hurt other people, you know, what bad things can happen to ourselves and others. And so just this acknowledgement that sin is never personal and it's never merely personal and private. Yeah. Like every sin is a sin against our community in some way. And I think Austin really is able to show what that looks like without ever being preachy or, you know, she doesn't go on these like, long expositions of, of, you know, let's talk about this virtue and this character should have, I mean, she doesn't do that at all, but it's just there in the story and it's there for you to think about and explore. And it's definitely some of her unique genius, but, and then I think there's also an element where I think we just don't talk about virtue in, in the same way anymore. I think being kind of generally nice and on the right side of certain issues or, or whatever it is, is like, that that constitutes enough and that she doesn't have to go on a big speech about perseverance or charity or any of those things, because in some ways a lot more of that was 
woven through the kind of understanding. Um, I know you referenced the essay by C.S. Lewis, which I then went to go and read and was like, oh man, it's not on the internet. I should have like gone and got the book. And I was like, so annoyed at myself. And I spent a good like 10 minutes being annoyed at myself. And then I realized uh, it was sitting on my bookshelf the whole time. Amazing. It was so funny. My, my I love brother- that essay. Honestly, it was amazing. And uh, my brother got, got that from me a couple of years ago. That's maybe the, the only disadvantage of a well-stocked library is sometimes you don't quite have a track of everything that's on there. But luckily, I remembered in time. And here's this great quote, which is about the great abstract nouns of the classical English moralists are unblushingly and uncompromisingly used. Good sense, courage, contentment fortitude and he quotes some duty neglected some failing indulged and then impropriety indelicacy generous candor blamable distrust just humiliation vanity folly ignorance reason these are concepts by which Jane Austen grasps the world all is hard clear definable by some modern standards even naively so the hardness of course is for oneself not for one's neighbours it reveals to Marianne her want of kindness and shows Emma that her behaviour has been unfeeling contrasted with the world of modern fiction Jane Austen's is at once less soft and less cruel and I just think that wonderfully sums it up that like it is this world in which all of those great descriptors are used and like can be applied and I think that's why it's so compelling to read about because she has this language of talking about self-reflection and out of the six of her novels four of them have this great moment of undeception for her heroines and where they kind of realize their failings and it's always so compelling and heartbreaking and it totally makes me as a reader go what are the big blind spots in my life that I'm just not seeing? Because like we said, it's not like they're engaged in malicious activity, but they are failing and it does matter. And it reminds you to assess yourself and say, what are the things that I'm just sweeping under the rug? It's like, well, of course everyone does that. And it doesn't really matter. Absolutely. I love, I love that quote and his just the less soft, but less cruel because it's clear that there's no question that there is a right and wrong in Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a right and a wrong. And and that's just the foundation of the world. There are good things to do. There are bad things to do. But her characters are incredibly human. They're a mix of good things and failings. But there's never hopelessness. There's always a sense that this character has a chance to kind of wake up to this. They've been given a grace by being awakened or undeceived, as C.S. Lewis says, so that they can see reality more clearly and see themselves more clearly. And then from there, they can get better. You know, they're not, they don't have to be stuck. And I, I think that that's what makes her characters so compelling is because we can relate to all of them. We can, all of their feelings we can imagine ourselves doing a similar thing or a time when, oh, wow, I, I did the same sort of thing, or I, I acted out of this same vice um, mm-hmm. that had become a habit for me in the way I, either my attitude towards other people or different things I was doing. But then we see that they do have a chance to change and they can do it. And we see that for her heroines and her you know, quote unquote villains. She doesn't have very many true villains at all because they're also very relatable. It's often mm-hmm. not malice, but weakness, not being able to do the thing you know you should do. 
Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a chance for them too. We just see them miss their chance. They don't, they don't take it. And they, they decide to kind of give in to whatever vice or weakness that has become habitual. They're not able to pull themselves out of that. But I think that another thing that I love about Austin is she also gives us kind of these blueprints for what does it look like to have this moment of self-realization? What does it look like to know something about ourselves and actually get better? And I think that that's what's so helpful is she shows usually other people have to show us. Usually it's not like we're just walking along and we have this moment of epiphany where it's like, oh, I realize I'm really not yeah. very humble and I'm going to do better about this. It's usually that there's a moment of, of like humiliation yeah. where we realize, oh no, and someone has to point it out to us. And maybe it's pointed out to us in a really like mortifying way, or maybe it's somebody is gently trying to tell us something because they really care about us and they, they see yeah. how it's hurting us and other people. And so it's so tied into friendship and romantic relationships and whatever our community is being the mirror that we can see ourselves more clearly through because by ourselves, it's really, really hard. I think, which is why Christian community is so important. Our, our families, our friends, these are the relationships that show us where our feelings are. And it, you know, as a parent, I have four kids. And as a parent, my children are the absolute best mirror to see all of my horrible qualities. You know, <laughs> my most horrible failings are so obvious through my relationships with my children because it just becomes very obvious that, wow, you're really lacking in this. They make it so clear to you, um, which is, you know, horrifying, but also a, a grace. That's kind of what the family is designed for, too, to lead us to holiness. And so I think that's one of the things I love about the trajectory of her characters is it's usually this grace given to them by the people around them. It's just every, everyday things that pop up and show them who they are. And then taking that opportunity to try to get better, usually for the sake of other people, you know, our love for other people is kind of often the catalyst towards um, redemption, you know, wanting to be transformed. And so I think that's what I love. It's so hopeful, but also so realistic in the way that it happens. Yeah, I totally love that. And I think it's maybe a good way to spring into, I suggested maybe we talk about uh, two of the titles in particular. I've picked two of, um, I, I almost don't want to say this because I know you're such a big advocate for Mansfield Park, but the the the, the two poorer sisters, the ones that maybe get a little less attention in, in the Jane Austen discussions, uh, which are Mansfield Park and Northanger Abbey, and to talk about them because I love the way in your book you take each title and then you also use each title as a way to talk about a specific kind of two-sided coin of a failing and a virtue that that is explored and it's not the they're never the only virtues and failings in in, in the stories but there are they are kind of central to it um, and then I love that you tie it into different images of Our Lady I just think that's so wonderful but I had even though I have honestly reread 
Northanger Abbey within the last, I think, month, <laughs> I was still caught off guard by how much I was cringing over your description of her, of Catherine Morland's fall from grace in Northanger Abbey. It's a real, um, you can you can definitely feel for her because it's, I mean, it's definitely the one that maybe pushes believability a little bit, but <laughs> it's still it's still very relatable of just making an absolute fool of yourself. <laughs> Yes, I, that's okay. So, in full disclosure, Northanger Abbey is my least favorite of Austen's mm-hmm. novels, and I think it's because of that. It's a different sort of novel. It's written as a parody of some of these gothic novels, so it has a very different feel. It's it's very different. It's hilarious. It's fun. Um, it's a little bit less realistic than the other ones because Austen's making fun of these gothic novels that are so dramatic and cheesy. yeah, it's very funny. Um, so it works, but it's it's not at the top of my mm-hmm. favorites of her novels. But it's yes, Catherine's like mortifying moments are so cringe. Like it's so embarrassing, and you just feel so awkward for her. And we've yeah. all had those moments where we say or do something, and then thinking back, you know, when we realize what we've done it's hard to even wrap our minds around how we ever thought it was a good idea (laughs) but in the moment you know we just weren't thinking and then later you've got that terrible feeling in the pit of your stomach and you're wondering why did I ever think this was okay um so that's kind of Catherine but it was fun diving into that novel thinking about her growth from folly to prudence Mm. and kind of what prudence means this kind of um this kind of wisdom that helps us see reality clearly and see what is the right thing to do and so that is what Catherine struggles with because she's immature she just can't see very far she she can't see clearly and so it's not that she has any malice at all. There's not a mean bone in her body. She's such a sweetheart, but she can't discern well other people's motives, whether they have her best interests, what's going on. And so she keeps making all of these horrible blunders just out of her lack of prudence, her lack of discernment. She's not able to see what is actually real around her. Absolutely. And I think I'll just give a quick summary of it for any of our listeners who don't know it. But I think uh, we did a Jane Austen episode, I think about two, three years ago. And I said in that as well, that um, of course, if you want to skip my summary, by all means, if you haven't read it, but also I, I don't feel like summaries really spoil Jane Austen books because they, you know, you kind of know what you're getting in in, in for when it's a Jane Austen book, but <laughs> it's about, um, Catherine Morland, who I think is the youngest of her heroines, and she is a somewhat poorer relative who gets taken to Bath with some some more wealthy friends and makes some bad friends and some good friends. <laughs> and she makes a fool of herself a couple of times in Bath. But then most importantly, she is invited to Northanger Abbey, the home of 
the the man she's falling for and and his lovely sister and then she because she's been reading all of these gothic novels she starts imagining that their father is some sort of crazy villain up to all kinds of plots and schemes and she she not only kind of realizes how ridiculous this is she realizes it because the guy that she's falling for finds out that she's been imagining all of these horrible things about his father and it's so crushingly like embarrassing and Austin really captures it she says the visions of romance were over Catherine was completely awakened Henry's address short as it had been had been had more thoroughly opened her eyes to the extravagance of her late fancies than all the several disappointments had done most grievously she was humbled most bitterly did she cry it was not only with herself she had sunk but with Henry her folly which now seemed even criminal was exposed to him and he must despise her forever um <laughs> which um, also sounds like the type of thing a 17 year old would write about themselves but i do think like you said that it's interesting that folly is the issue here which in some ways feels like it's not a vice in that it's not a, a cruel inclination or anything like that but it is a failure to use your virtue appropriately and you use the phrase uh, like a failure of moral imagination in the book and I thought that was really spot on because it is a failure to not cultivate practical wisdom and an ability to maintain your own virtue but also not have delusions about other people because she has these friends who are like lying to her and being totally hypocritical in front of her and it just sort of never occurs to her that like they're not good people <laughs> and you kind of I think Chesterton has a point about how like virtues can run amok in society and that like if we have all of these virtues but we don't have the prudence to use them correctly then they can almost be destructive in the ways that vices are destructive mm -hmm. absolutely and i think that really lack of prudence is one of the most problematic failures <laughs> in you know christian culture and culture in general right now thinking about how people have trouble discerning what authorities to listen to or you know what's real what's really happening in the world and so if that's the case if we're not able to see with clear eyes then we might be really brave in a moment you know for the wrong thing you know we might yeah. be like very have all this courage and sacrifice for this cause that isn't really a cause we should be fighting for because yeah. we're drawn in because of folly. And so those other virtues need to fall in line with prudence. You know, if we have prudence and it tells the other virtues what to do and what to fight for and and yeah. how to how to act well in this situation. What's the virtuous thing to do here in this particular situation? And if we have trouble doing that, then all the other virtues will be kind of, like you said, like running amok, causing all of these problems because we we're in, the, I think that, um, I think it's the catechism that talks about prudence as this chariot that is leading the virtues in the right direction. And so if our chariot is kind of all over the place, meandering and falling off the road, then the <laughs> virtues can't get where they need to go. You know, it's so, it's, it's yeah. crucial. 
And so I think that um, it was fun writing that chapter because that prudence is kind of a difficult virtue for us to wrap our minds around something like courage. We all get what courage is. You know, that's easy. Or justice. Okay, we, we get what's what's just, what's not just. This makes sense. But prudence is a little bit trickier to understand. And so I had a really good time kind of learning with Catherine, Catherine Moreland from Northanger Abbey about what what is prudence and how does it work in our lives? Why do we need it? What does it look like when we have it or don't have it? Yeah, I thought it was really good because I, I do... I, I have wrestled with myself because I do find I fall into a category of maybe being a bit more cynical and I find it hard to um, see the positive sides of a more kind of open attitude or, or a less uh, a, a less cynical attitude. But I think the thing that I dislike is that sense of naivety and um, and I know in mere Christianity, Lewis talks about that as well that like yes, we're called to be like children. Um, but actually, we're still actually called to cultivate our intellect and to have thought deeply about our ourselves and our faith and all of those things that it is good to make sure that we are knowledgeable and that we are not, you know, like you said, that great analogy of the, the chariot veering in wild directions. And I think the other really interesting thing that that book brings up is that it's so much like commenting on Gothic novels. And there's a very surface level reading, which is just saying that like, oh, Jane Austen thinks that Gothic novels, or maybe even novels are like a bad thing for, for people to be reading. And that's clearly not true, especially since she wrote novels. <laughs> um, but that I, I, when I was reading her letters, there's this one um, passage that I thought was really funny where someone came to the door to encourage her family to join this library they had set up and gave, it's not just novels, it's sermons and essays and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, he needn't have bothered if he, <laughs> if he knew how much, how many novels we read. <laughs> we didn't need further convincing past the novels. Uh, but I do think that she is pointing to the fact that the things that we consume if we don't cultivate prudence can sway us and can lead us in directions and that we can't just think of them as totally neutral, that they can have impacts and impacts that lead us in the ways that we treat people in the ways that we see people in the ways that we approach situations. So I do think she is talking about something which is really relevant today, especially when there's so much to read and so much to consume and so much to engage with that to not think we're above being swayed by something. Mm -hmm. I think that there's this sense of coming to a book with humility mm. to start with. And so I think she's both arguing for reading good books. You know, some of the worst characters, like in this one, there's this terribly pompous, horrible young man named John Thorpe. And he he talks about this novel that he's read that apparently was like just a terrible, terrible novel, but he's like really talking it up. And this is like the only novel he's ever read. And so clearly what books we read do matter, but then also who we are as a reader matters. You know, the book matters, but the reader matters too, because we see Catherine, her terrible friend, Isabella Thorpe, and wonderful wise Henry Tilney have all read a lot of the same books. But what are they, how are they reading it as readers? What are they drawing from it? Are they being discerning? I um, can't remember if I told this story in the book. I think I did. But I, I wrote once about 
reading Jane Austen, how it's a wonderful thing for um, young women to read. And this was a blog post years ago. And someone commented about how they can't believe I said that because Sense and Sensibility shows us just the horrible role model of Marianne Dashwood. And we wouldn't want our daughters to behave like Marianne Dashwood does. And that's the point of the book. You know, the point of the book is that Marianne is really going about this the wrong way and has to go through this complete transformation. And so but she, as a literally says that herself. She says at the end, like, I am ashamed of the way that I acted. I wouldn't want anyone exactly. else to act. Exactly. It, it's pretty clear. But if as a reader, we don't have the discernment to see that every main character isn't being presented as a role model in every situation, then you can't read books. You know, it's going to be very confusing. And so there's this level of prudence and discernment as a reader hmm. that we need to choose good books, but then we need to be good readers as well. Absolutely. And I love that. And I think you did such a good job because like we're saying, prudence is such a, it just sounds old fashioned to us now. Like we don't even know what that means. Like I've come across it as the name of a character once and I've been like, oh, who would call their daughter prudence? And I still think I probably wouldn't call my daughter prudence, but it just feels so fussy and antiquated and all of those things. It is actually something that applies to our lives every day, even if we've lost a kind of language of how to speak about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I guess then to move from your least favorite to is, is Mansfield Park your favorite or is it just the one that you're most advocating for a, a, a revival of? <laughs> it probably isn't my number one favorite, but I do love it. And I think it's the most underrated of all of them. So it's the one I champion the most because yeah. it needs the most champions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pride and Prejudice probably doesn't need that many, many champions. Austin was definitely aware of this herself. Like I said in her letters, she she comments that Mansfield Park probably won't be sort of sparkling enough for the people who liked the, the like really brilliant humor of Pride and Prejudice. And it's not that there's not humor in Mansfield Park, but it's it's still more... There's, there's a quiet energy to it in a way that the uh, the previous two that she wrote, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, are very, like, obviously bright and shining. Yes. Mansfield Park, it's definitely darker. There are funny, funny moments, particularly there's a minor character, Mr. Rushworth, who is kind of this young, wealthy goober of a man. Like, he's just so goofy. Um, and some of his dialogue is just so hilarious. Like I think about it, I'll just be like driving around and I'll think about what Mr. Rushworth said and just burst into laughter. Um, but overall, it is a much more like kind of gray book. It's drearier, it's bleaker, it's not as funny. Um, but I think it really gets into some of Austin's most brilliant work as a moral philosopher. Yeah. And talking about moral education. And I think it says more about us that we often don't find Fanny Price, who's the protagonist. She's not charming and sparkling like Elizabeth Bennett. You know, we don't like her as much. That probably says more about us than it does about her because she's actually quite lovely. Yeah. But there is, I mean, to be, to be fair to her critics, she isn't as likable as the other protagonists. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and it isn't just because she's not super charming, you know, she, she's just not as likable and that's okay. But she is, I think that we often have trouble understanding what makes her spectacular in some ways because it's a virtue that we don't really talk about or think about very much. So the virtue that I think that she really shows us is constancy. And um, constancy was another one of those virtues that I really had to do some research and dive into to feel like I had a good grasp of it. And um, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre talks about it in his book, After Virtue. He loves Austin, and, but he talks about Fanny Price and constancy and how constancy is this virtue that if you don't have it, all the other virtues kind of, they don't have a point anymore. You know, there's, there's no point in having virtue if you don't have constancy, because it means you're not going to be able to stay strong in whatever conviction it is, just as if that virtue didn't, it just evaporated. And so it's kind of one of these essential virtues, kind of like prudence, you know, that's showing us where the virtue should go constancy is is what's holding them up and so we have to have it and i think that fanny shows us that constancy even though she's not like this joan of arc character who's like really strong she's kind of a fragile little person she's very shy and introverted and emotional and um she's super reserved she doesn't come across as a strong person or like a strong character that we would have in, in a contemporary novel. She's not like a strong female character, but she actually is quite strong despite these characteristics that make it very difficult for her to, to practice constancy when it's not what other people want her to do. Yeah. She is able to overcome all of those other pressures. And so when the moment that everything kind of clicked is I was listening to this Cornell West lecture. I don't know if you've listened to this, Rachel, I'll have to send you the link if you haven't listened to it, because he gives a lecture about Jane Austen. And it is absolutely phenomenal. And he talks about um, constancy and this, it's, it's like what protects the self from everything that would be trying to tear down the self. So everything that would put the self under attack, it's what surrounds it and protects it. And so I think about Fanny Price as like this tower, her constancy is the tower that's Mm -hmm. able to hold her up despite her family members and all of these pressures that are trying to convince her not to do the things she knows is the right thing to do. And so despite being very sensitive and shy and fragile and delicate, she is able to be very strong despite all of these pressures. And so I think that's what makes her really spectacular as a protagonist is constancy despite pressure from other people might be not that difficult for Elizabeth Bennet. You know, she... She yeah. knows that she isn't going to tell Lady Catherine de Bourgh that she will never marry Mr. Darcy. It's not that hard for her. She, yeah. But because she is someone who is outgoing and strong and Fanny Price is not that person. And so I think it makes it all the more remarkable when she's able to hold fast to her convictions and we can see what that looks like in someone who it's not a natural, that's not their natural bent at all. 
And so I think that that was really fun to to think about and also to see so many times Austin's characters that are either rakes, not necessarily villains, but but rakes like Henry Crawford and in Mansfield Park or kind of the the romantic hero who is struggling to do what he needs to do, like in Mansfield Park, that's um, Edmund Bertram. He's really struggling with constancy. It's not that he doesn't want to do what's right or know what's right, Mm -hmm. but he's really having trouble doing the right thing despite these other pressures. And that's kind of what makes them a less satisfying, um, in my opinion. I don't find him a very satisfying spouse for Fanny. I think she deserves better. But it's interesting that we see that it's that weakness really more than malice in most cases with Austin's villains. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that is just spot on because in that essay we talked about with C.S. Lewis, he does a great job. So it's Mansfield Park and Persuasion that have the two examples of the heroines that don't have these moments of undeceiving and that they maintain their virtue throughout the whole story and that it's really the people around them that need to change or that that the you you see that development in other characters but he makes this great point about the both Fanny Price and then Anne Elliot in Persuasion of being solitary that like this this commitment to virtue actually on many occasions leaves them quite on their own and the, to an extent that like Elizabeth Bennet isn't and the other the other distinction that he draws with both of them is that they're not women of consequence, that they they are not like anywhere that Elizabeth goes, of course, she has the confidence to stand up and be forced because she's always been treated with a certain level of dignity and respect and, and the expectation that she'll be treated well. Whereas Fanny Price, which to just put Mansfield Park in a nutshell, Fanny Price is the, the poor relative that this very wealthy family take in. And that's very much baked into both her understanding of herself and how the family treat her. And like in many ways they treat her well in that they've given her um, a life that she couldn't have expected otherwise. But they do kind of, especially with aunt, <laughs> Mrs. Norris, the aunt who takes every opportunity to reinforce that Fanny Price is this lowly character who's been allowed to join this this more wealthy and more dignified group of people. And then essentially the, <laughs> the action of the novel centers around, as you mentioned, Henry and his sister, Mary Crawford, becoming friends with this family and in very small, slight ways, all of their failings and they're led astray to a certain extent by the Crawfords, but you also see the kind of fractures within the family of how the father, Sir Thomas, fails to cultivate virtue, especially in his daughters. And one of the big kind of climaxes, or I guess to, to have a pun, the set pieces of the the novel is this uh, attempt to put on a play at home. And again, like it's funny because you read all of these letters of Jane Austen, she's always attending the theatre. And so so again, it's not a question of whether plays are immoral, but you know when you're playing with fire that like it, the novel is all about masks and doing what you want to do under the disguise of something else. And so it's very obvious that this play is just an attempt to get people who are kind of romantically in, in, interested in each other to throw themselves at each other and, and all of these things. And so both Edmund and Fanny start off being like totally against it and Edmund buckles. It's really disappointing. He decides to join them and he he gives a very lofty reason of like, well, if I don't do it, someone else will have to come in and that's exposing us to more vice potentially if, if there's someone else involved. And it's like, oh, that's very 
like nice and well, but you're still not actually choosing virtue in that moment. And like you said, I think the really heartbreaking thing is that in some ways, Fanny's constancy looks like inaction that like at, at first glance, it just like looks like she fails to do anything. But like you point out in your book, actually, it's this incredible onslaught. I just know that if I were in that position, I would feel so pushed to try and break my resolve. And I like I have a quote from, of course, Mrs. Norris, who has all of the worst quotes in the whole thing. She's so... Well, who is arguably the only villain, true villain in all mm-hmm. of Austin. You know, there's she's just bad through and through. I don't think there's any other characters as bad. I yeah I think that's accurate because she's just awful but she says so they've asked Fanny to play a part and it's just like a really small part but they're like oh we need an extra person of course you have to do this and Fanny is saying like absolutely no and Mrs Norris says what a piece of work here is about nothing I am quite ashamed of you Fanny to make such difficulty of your obliging cousins in a trifle of this sort so kind as they are to you take the part with a good grace and let us hear no more of the matter I entreat and then when Edmund says like don't urge her And she goes, I'm not going to urge her, but I shall think her a very obstinate, ungrateful girl if she does not do what her aunt and cousins wish her. Very ungrateful indeed, considering who and what she is. And that's, that's not a small thing to stick to your principles with that kind of... And that's in front of the whole family, like a public dressing down. And because it feels like it's such a trifle, it feels like couldn't possibly be that big a deal but it turns out that she is completely right and that she was right to stick to her morals but she's really put through through it to do that and i think that she's also showing she and edmund both are able to have the prudence to see okay plays aren't wrong putting on a play isn't wrong but this particularly this particular combination of people in this particular situation mm-hmm. this is not what should be done and so they have the prudence to see it, but only Fanny has the constancy to stick to her resolve, knowing this is not going to go well, or it at least might not. Mm-hmm. It may not. It may cause problems. And um, it's, it's one of those interesting situations that call for that kind of prudence, that kind of discernment mm. that I think Austin is so good at things are never just black and white plays are bad don't do plays you know that's never what she's like um but it's it's encountering these different situations and pressures and then discerning what is the right thing to do in this particular situation that's what's really difficult about life Mm. and that there is no yeah like you said if it were very obvious what to do then it would be fine but you know the the novel shows her her tortured experience of this. And then later she has an even greater burden put on her where she's asked to accept a hand in marriage. And everyone is like, of course you're going to do this. And all of the people that she most respects expect it of her. And again, so in that way, you can really see how maybe if she had failed and done the play, maybe there w- wouldn't have been anything that bad, bad that came out of the play directly. But it's that little like, well, she was able to stay constant then, so maybe she'll be able to stay constant for this next thing. And that, like, you are always building up your virtues, that it's never static. You're either kind of going one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So you can't let those little opportunities slip because 
they're cumulatively going to matter when it's like your life isn't in terms of like her married life or her life going forward. Like that's what's in the balance at that stage. And she still has to withstand kind of attacks on her character, um, which are so totally unjustified. (laughs) Yes, poor Fanny. No, it's terrible. And I can't, like, I don't see myself having that kind of moral fortitude in her circumstances. It's no. always wild. And that she is so um, clear-headed about other people's character, which mm-hmm. I every time I read Mansfield Park, I'm like, Henry, I kind of love him. He's kind of charming. <laughs> Maybe he's going to be okay. You know, he can just mm-hmm. be reformed a little bit. And he's so delightful. This is going to be great. And it, it, she just is never taken in by people the way Mm -hmm. that I think most of us are, especially if we are, if we tend to be attracted to charming people and those are the sort of people we want to surround us ourselves with, then it's often this kind of veneer because very charming people are very interested in how other people are perceiving them. And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a really positive trait for a good relationship or a good friendship. But I think it's so it's so easy to both want to be charming and to be around charming people. And I think that's one of the the themes of the book is we have this very uncharming protagonist, Fanny, and kind of learning to love her and learning to be more discerning about the charming people around her, I think always makes me think about both myself and how I want to be perceived by people. Am I really putting too much thought into that? So much self-consciousness. And also, how am I um, how am I judging the character of other people? Am I just very charmed by someone and not noticing obvious red flags like Henry Crawford's? And I think that that's just something she shows you really well, partly through the characters and partly through your own experience reading and learning to love Fanny during the the course of the novel. Yeah, I always think of there there are friends in my life who I think are such amazing people, but I know it would have been so easy cuz you know, you I've met them in bigger social settings and it's so easy to not give someone the space and the time to let their qualities show. Um, when there's someone more gregarious or more charming or more um, noticeable in in a group that like I just feel I, I don't attribute it to my own virtue I attribute it to to God putting the right people in my path but I'm so grateful that there are people in my life who I did give that chance to that I didn't say oh no I want to I'll just talk to the more the more outgoing person because it usually turns out that they do have charm in in their own way but that it's just not the type of charm that pushes itself forward in front of other people and in in that way it's probably indicative like you said of a of a greater kind of virtue within themselves that isn't all about needing to be the center of attention and needing to be the one who's flattered and does the flattering um Mm -hmm. and i love that that 
like what you said about constancy, when it comes to Fanny and, and the proposal, I think I would be able to withstand not marrying the person, but I don't think I would withstand the fact that she doesn't explain why she's doing it because she has information that would in, like make other people look bad. So she just mm. says no and then doesn't incriminate other people in, in, in her refusal. And that's the bit where I'm like, you're all going under the bus. No. I'm going to tell everyone what's going on here. <laughs> I'm not going to suffer for your sins. Yeah, no, exactly. No, that's true. And I think almost that, that it makes it difficult for me to read it. Cause I'm like, just say it, Fanny, mm -hmm. just tell them what's happening. Kind of like with, um, with sensibility, you've got, what I was thinking. and you just want to tell them, just, just tell Eleanor that you're engaged and, you don't mm -hmm. want to be engaged, but it's information she should know. You know, just just tell her, just spit it out. Or when um, it's and he's Eleanor who's been told something in confidence by someone who doesn't have any goodwill towards her, and the fact that she keeps that, she says, "Yeah, I said I I keep that secret." So then she's just in so much pain, and nobody is paying any attention to her because she's like, "No, no, I couldn't say it." And it's like, I don't know where you get that kind of discipline to not just say, well, I said it was incompetence, but my mom doesn't count, does it? <laughs> or I didn't know how horrible they were when they told me mm -hmm. this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I guess that is, that comes back to like that whole idea of constancy. And I've referenced this a lot on the podcast of like keeping your word and like sticking to it. And I love that quote that you had from Joseph Pieper um, which is enduring comprises a strong activity of the soul, namely a vigorous grasping of and clinging to the good. And only from this stout-hearted activity can the strength to support the physical and spiritual suffering of injury and death can be nourished. And so it's not that we have to totally rethink our idea of courage and that it doesn't involve activity or, or a kind of forward motion, but that it begins, first of all, in a withstanding to ref and refusal to relinquish the good. And so it comes first from this kind of endurance and constancy, like we said, and that then from there that you have, like in, in other stories of kind of heroics, that you have the courage to go out and do these great tasks. But you can't do that unless you've cultivated this fortitude beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, what I mean ties into what we're discussing at the beginning of this episode, but just that Austin sh kind of shows how those little those little decisions and steps do matter, mm -hmm. and that's both can be discouraging or <laughs> encouraging. You know, if we think about it as well, this little step towards virtue that does have significance. It wasn't meaningless. It mattered then that can feel really encouraging. But if we're thinking, wow, I keep I keep failing in these small ways, then it can feel really discouraging. But I think that she just is always showing that this perseverance is what distinguishes the heroes from the villains in her novels. That you you see the potential in each of the characters. You see the person they could be, especially I think um, Mary Crawford or Henry Crawford, you know, they have, they have some good aspirations even, but they can't stick with any of them. And that's what distinguishes them from even 
Edmund who fails, but then is able to turn things around. He's able yeah. to turn things around and start moving in the right direction again. And so it's that hope in if we keep putting one foot in front of the other, then there there is grace in that process. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, it really does bring us back to that first discussion of like, why she's so good at that. And I think it is because she really hones in on her experience and she brings her kind of genius to it. And I think she's a really great example of like, obviously she was, she wasn't Catholic, she was Anglican, but that she's still in a way that saint of like being the saint that God called you to be. And that's not to say like, obviously fiction always is an, is an element of like imagining yourself somewhere that you, you haven't been or putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and creating a fictional world. But I do think that the thing that makes her particularly good is her ability to stick to, um, the vocation that God gave her and to really relish in the, the genius that she brings to that, that like, yeah, I, it's, I think it's in your book and it's a famous quote of hers that she describes her writing as like that little bit, two inches wide of ivory, which I work with so fine a brush. And it's about this whole, like you said, these like tiny, tiny moments and this like tiny little drawing that she's doing or these like little moments that, become part of this much bigger pattern of morality and justice and virtue and failings, like you said. Yes. And I think showing, I, I always, I think I wrote this in the book, but I think about her settings kind of like little snow globes. You know, when you look in a snow globe and it's like yeah. this tiny little village or something and it's just perfect. It's tiny, but it's so meticulously done here. And that's her, her, um, what you just read about her two inches wide, it's her tiny ivory, she's her fine little mm -hmm. brush. And I think that that is what makes her not just remarkable in spite of not having these vast epic settings and um, environments, but what maybe makes her even more brilliant than authors who are, are writing these huge dramas is because that is going to be the experience that we all have. Like most of us yeah. are not going to be making these life or death decisions on the battlefield, but we do have to decide how we're going to treat our family today. We do have to decide how this really irritating thing is going to cause us to completely derail everyone's comfort in our home because we're frustrated <laughs> or whether this is a time when we can be patient and try to move forward. And so it's, I think it's because of the tiny nature of her settings that makes her so effective for us as we explore these ideas for our own lives. Absolutely. And like, it almost then does the reverse in that it takes those domestic situations and elevates them to these great works of art that like it, it takes those really small things and makes them magnificent in the way that we should recognize that the the battle for our souls that goes on every day is actually something that is magnificent even if it is about whether we're patient or impatient with somebody on the phone and 
I because I love and G.K. Chesterton writes beautifully about her. He's a he's another male author who gets her. <laughs> um, but she he describes her as saying she was naturally exuberant, and her power came as all power comes from the control and direction of exuberance. But there is a presence and a pressure of that vitality behind her thousand trivialities, and I think. I love that description of her being exuberant because it is what takes these things that feel very mundane and it doesn't make them dour or it doesn't make them feel like they're less than it makes them it makes them feel like they're they're more than and I just think that she so owns who she is like she just loves who she is and she loves her family and her her even her situation she talks about how much she loves being an aunt and like there's a lot of things in her life that you could have cultivated bitterness and you know she she didn't get married and she experienced poverty and even the fact she died young she had illness there were so many things that you can take and make into something that makes your life smaller and more cramped and yet she constantly feels like she's bubbling over with a joy of life and I love that one of my favorite bits in the letters was that (laughs) the guy who was publishing her books was like suggesting all of these ideas for her to write other books and they're all like a clergyman who was out on the ocean and is like (laughs) engaging in all of these big things and she's just like uh, no, and she she finishes one of her letters saying uh, that she couldn't possibly write this character because he's educated and I'm I'm not educated. So she says, I think I may boast myself to be, with all possible vanity, the most unlearned and uninformed female who ever dared to be an authoress. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, so she's funny. having like, a tongue-in-cheek moment with like refusing this man who is like publishing her book so she doesn't want to annoy him too much but but she's just like no you really don't get it like I, I I'm never gonna write about that I'm gonna write about these things that are are where I bring my vitality and my my gifts from God my genius which is from God and I'm not going to pretend that I actually suit this other thing that like actually I'm just going to really embrace what God has given me in life and and through that show how other people can actually embrace the situations that they're in to cultivate their their virtue. Yes, and I think perhaps because she succeeded at at that so well personally, I think that's what makes her final protagonist and Elliot in persuasion mm-hmm. just so remarkable. I think that maybe not in temperament, but in facing disappointments in life and facing them with endurance and, and patience and trying to find contentment, not um, you know, dismissing the, the pain and disappointments of life, but being able to persevere through them. Um, I think that's perhaps what makes Anne, I would say maybe her best protagonist Mm -hmm. um her best character she's just so so fleshed out and I, I I do wonder how much Austin sympathized with Anne or saw herself in Anne how much of her that she put into Anne Elliot because you know she is the oldest heroine she so you know she's faced a lot of disappointments in love and there's a lot going on with all of her family and she's kind of 
stuck a little bit. And I wonder if Austin felt that way, you know, her brothers and sisters, you know, brothers getting married and she and Cassandra are kind of stuck. All this action is happening around them. And yet she isn't bitter. Mm. And so I think that that being able to experience the disappointments in life that we're all going to experience to some degree without becoming bitter is something both personally and she brings to life for all of us to see in Anne. Yeah. And that also to not put restrictions on what God has planned for us, because, you know, her brothers and sisters may have had the more kind of notable public lives, but we wouldn't know about them if it hadn't been for their spinster sister who wrote yeah. six of the greatest novels of English literature. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yes, very true. I think we could talk about how much we love Anne Elliot and Jane Austen for, forever. I do think, again, she's like Fanny Price. She's one of the ones who doesn't need to be undeceived. And yet, whereas I think we've done it, you certainly do a great job of defending Fanny from the accusation of insipidity, but I don't think anyone would ever accuse Anne Elliot of that. And so it's such a triumph that you can write someone who is thoroughly virtuous that doesn't need to be... Um, like I, I don't want to say doesn't need to be redeemed, but doesn't need to adjust for her failings, and yet is totally compelling, totally rich, and um, yeah, just this wonderful, wonderful character. And yeah, I I, I agree. I totally love Anne Elliot as well. She's yeah, just it's brilliant. I, it's something that I can't wrap my mind around. You know, there's the idea that in fiction the evil characters are so much more compelling. It's really hard not to make good characters really boring. Mm -hmm. And it's true. And yet she, I think, especially in Persuasion, is able to somehow create this completely sympathetic, completely lovable, adorable character that is really, truly good. And yeah, it's fantastic. So for listeners who haven't read Persuasion yet, put it at the top of your list. Well, second on your list, first, Haley's new book. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of which, uh, do you want to say a bit about the book, where you can get it, and all of those sure. details? So it's Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life. It's published by Ave Maria Press. If you're in the States, you can order it from Ave Maria Press. Um, you can pre-order it, and then it will be out March 25th. If you're outside of the States, it is probably easier to order it from Evil Amazon. So. <laughs> you can just find it there. It's already available for pre-order and then it should be out March 25th. I'm just kind of crossing my fingers and I actually haven't even asked my publisher if there's any updates about delays. There's mm -hmm. tons of printing delays right now, yeah. due to paper shortage and distribution issues and everything. So I'm just kind of crossing my fingers and saying March 25th because that's the day it's supposed to come out and we'll just hope for the best. Yeah, I think that, that that's excellent. I know I, I work in publishing my myself and I think people are amazed when you start talking about there's literally a paper shortage in the world. Um, but I would really recommend it. I loved reading it. I was really great grateful to get um, an advanced copy and I will certainly be buying it for myself and uh, for all of those listening who are friends of mine expect it as your birthday pre present for the next year um, and thank you so much for for joining us for this conversation Hayley and as, this is really fun. Uh, as usual we're going to round up with uh, a recommendation for what are you enjoying at the moment okay let's see so I am really enjoying the 
All Creatures Great and Small, the, the mm-hmm. newish series. So we've had a very illness-heavy winter, <laughs> January <laughs> and February so far. So my kids have been home from school a lot. We've had a lot of downtime. And we've been watching that and it just makes sick days so much better. So just pretty delightful. I love it. I've seen a couple of I've seen a couple of the episodes of the original one and I've seen a couple of episodes of the new one. I have a friend, uh, Aoife Dowling, who's in my Jane Austen book club, but she is a big advocate for it. So I need to I need to watch more, but I know it's fantastic and I love it. For my own recommendation, I'm going to say my brother got me a board game for Christmas, which I asked for, but he did get it for, <laughs> for me. But I had no idea whether, whether it would be any good. So I'm glad it's worked out. It's called Caper. And it's a kind of card game where you're collecting cards to create heists on different locations across Europe where um, you can play lots of different variations. So we've only been in Paris, the Paris cards so far. And you can, it's like, you've got the Eiffel Tower and you've got Versailles and you've got the antique shop and you collect these like bands of like, uh, there's there's one actually that's the nun <laughs> and uh, the artist and all of these other characters. And it's really, it's very fun um it's a like a 25 minute game each time and i've played it a bunch of times and i really love it it's a two-person game which is has been handy over our sort of limited social setting at the moment (laughs) um so i would really recommend caper and i think that's it as always thanks so much for listening and please do get in touch if there's anything you'd like to reach out about over the podcast and otherwise i'm sure i will be with you again soon goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.